podcast, the only book club podcast that keeps a fastidiously clean workspace and desk area. You never know, Amanda, who's going to just randomly stop by for a little spot check. Yeah, if only. I <laughs> My <laughs> office is a hot mess. <laughs> Would you then say that your office does not have a military-like cleanliness about it then, somehow? No, there it's uh, nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> you will not be passing inspection today then. I think I might I think I might. I probably wouldn't either though. It's you know, it's fun to have some junk out. You know, have a little bit of chaos on the desk. It shows liveliness, right? It shows life. I guess. Yeah, mine's just covered in like papers and like receipts that I need to like put in for tax purposes and like just Classic. toys that I need to fix for Viola. Oh yeah. Toy life. <laughs> You're in the toy life, though. You're well into that, yeah, lifestyle, and you've given yourself over to just the toy industry. It's true. They have my soul. If you, if you have no idea why we're talking about clean workspaces and the fastidiousness that can accompany that, it is because you have found a book club episode today on the nonfiction narrative. I was going to call it a novel. It's not. It's nonfiction narrative story. <laughs> Ghetto side. It is also a study of true. Uh, it says a true story of murder in America by Jill Leovi, which I'm now fixing the pronunciation of. So yeah, we'll be discussing sorry. the first half of that book today. <laughs> if you're not familiar with our show, we are, as I mentioned, the Lightly Literary Podcast, a book club podcast that posts every Friday and then book recommendations every other Monday. We have social media accounts you can follow, and we encourage you to. We're on Instagram and Facebook. We're just at the Lightly Literary Podcast. Podcast, all one word, so nice and simple and consistent. If you follow us on a podcast platform, we always appreciate it. If you appreciate it, rather, if you rate and review, it helps the show, helps people notice, and gets strangers listening to us talk about books. Amanda, that's what this is all yeah. about, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, chatting literature with some strangers. As I mentioned, <laughs> this will be a book club episode, which is an analytical deep dive episode. If you're listening to this one, you happen to be listening to the first. We're sort of relaunching the format of this today, so we'll see how it goes. We'll be experimenting a little bit with the format here. Um, it's still going to be an analytical deep dive, though, so we're still going to be picking apart you know, textual elements, looking at what we liked and didn't, looking at the style of it and the structure and everything like normal, just in a slightly different manner. Today we will be spoiling the first 14 chapters of Ghetto Side by, again, Jill Leovi. I think that's right, Amanda, yeah? Yes, it is. <laughs> Good. You're more thorough on that, so you're the one who keeps those notes well updated. And so, yeah, yes. that's what we'll be discussing, spoiling. Um, in our minds, everything 1 through 14 is fair game to discuss. So if that bothers you and you don't want to hear the discussion, just feel free to come back when you've read. If you're here and you haven't read, then, you know, feel free to listen along for the discussion. I think a lot of the new segments or the new format is meant for people who have not fully read or maybe have not read at all. So if you just want to hear two people you know chatting about a book this is your chance right <laughs> mm -hmm. excellent all right anything any notes yeah amanda before we jump in uh i don't think so i'm ready yeah let's get into it so the new structure of the book club shows is just going to be simpler. It's going to be chronological. So we're going to kind of talk through different chapters and go in order of the book. We will be, again, discussing elements in a critical manner. We're not just going to summarize. This is not a book summary. Can't em emphasize that enough. But we are going to try and build in some smoother transitions and notes about you know, what what's covered in the book, what the book's about. And then also, again, we'll be stopping to do analysis throughout, but we are, we're just going to go chronologically. So there aren't as many segments now. Our segments are just kind of going through the book in its own order, which should, I think, add some clarity and hopefully lets us hit the analysis in a different way. 
let's talk about this book. The first chapter, so this is a narrative nonfiction, as I mentioned, that focuses on policing in Los Angeles. And by looking at a case study there, it kind of focuses on issues in America about like racist police policies and institutional problems and history, etc. But it opens with Detective John Skaggs, a very detective-y name. <laughs> Did you, yeah. Is that a, yeah, it's got, it's got a rough sound to it. Anyway, so it opens with him kind of consoling a grieving mother whose son has just died. He has to be the one, of course, to deliver the devastating news that her son, who is a black teenager in Los Angeles, has been murdered. And the author, Leovi, uses this as kind of a microscopic moment, a bit of horror, to show the book's core ideas. Like, it's going to be about crime, policing, and really the underexamined lives, and in her argument, unprotected and un- underserved or unserved lives of many black Americans, especially in certain pocket neighborhoods in major yeah. U.S. cities, basically. And so this is like an opening chapter to kind of hone in on those issues and think about it this is probably the place we should start discussing something important amanda which is that this is not a topic people want to talk about that is one of the points she returns to many times she opens with this on page 11 there's a quote about how left-leaning politically left-leaning activists simply do not want to acknowledge this No matter the statistics that bear things out, the fact that, and this is true of any racial demographic group, that most violent crime happens within a racial group. So it's like, yes, there is a high percentage of black on black crime, which is, again, a thing that not many people want to talk about, but it's true for every racial group. It's just, of course, then that why are the crime rates within the black community so high? This book wants to crack that open. So it does start with some, I don't know, discomfort, maybe? Yeah, it um it actually reading the first chapter reminded me a lot of when we read um Ta-Nehisi Coates's uh Between the World and Me. And mm-hmm. um in in that uh, letter to his son, like nonfiction yeah. work. Autobiography? Essay. Yeah, yeah. It's like an essay. <laughs> <laughs> kind of defies <laughs> uh labeling there. But um uh, instead of like laying out like reasoning and stuff like that um Coates is actually like uh he he points out what like he ob- he makes observations but doesn't um say like why those things are happening it so if you like read that and then come back to this and start reading uh Leovi seems to kind of like pick up some of the pieces that uh some of the observations that Coates makes and then she actually tries to make tries to uh, explain the the whys and the hows Mm -hmm. of everything. Yeah, along with that, there is a quote here on 11 I'll just briefly read, but it, it she raises the question, um, other activists and people, one LA street activist, Najee Ali, said that they w- avoid talking about it, quote, like incest. And then she just ends by saying that paragraph, why emphasize what seems sure to be used against them, them meaning, again, usually left-leaning activists who want to, you know, help the black community in America, African Americans right. and everything, promote issues that would, would help those people. So it's, yeah, but I guess the key thing would be to say and I guess we'll hit this throughout the the analysis and throughout the book talk Uh, she's definitely I think sympathetic to police the job the stress the lifestyle those kinds of things but Mm -hmm. she's definitely not interested in this question in any of the ways it could be used in in bad faith 
She right. genuinely wants to know how to fix this problem. That seems right. that concern seems sincere. And I think that as soon as as soon as you accept that this question should maybe be asked and an answer pursued, then I think you can engage with the book in a much more I don't know. We're also just coming off a couple of years of extreme police brutality and extreme tension in the United States with regards to these kinds of things. So I will admit that reading the opening did put me on the back heel a little bit, just being like, oh shit, is this okay? It was a little bit of a different perspective than I expected to see. Um, you know, but I think I, there's obviously should be a place for it. You know, let's not put anything under a rock. That's, I think that would be her exact argument is people are just too comfortable ignoring this problem and they're too comfortable, right. you know, not paying attention to it. So yeah, I'm not sure how it hit you. Yeah, when when I first read it, I I was a bit surprised as well, especially um, for me um, on page nine. She she Leovi specifically talks about the the defunding the police movement, yeah. which was like a huge thing going on in the past couple of years. Yeah, um, and and her argument that like that actually hurts. <laughs> Uh, the like everybody mm-hmm. that it hurts the community because what what the community wants actually is not less policing but just more effective and and policing that actually like deals with um, some of these violent crimes right in, in right. a more timely manner um, and with more respect and sensitivity versus just like. Yeah, we're just going to pull them in and and be done with it. So that idea, and she even talks about how unpopular her argument is in in right, the, right. the kind of current society. And and I was just uh, very surprised that she was coming at it, um, and she was tackling that so early on in her book. Um, and so I was like, oh, okay, well, you know, just remember, like. You know, I was trying to remember um, to like always. I always keep an open mind, no matter um, what we read. Sure, and, of course. Um, so I was like, okay, well, this this should be interesting. I'm interested to see what her her ideas are, especially if they're going to be like as she says, like the unpopular opinion. So. Yeah, I think the uh, then the final thing I'll mention in this early about this early segment is that she she does kind of pay historical respect and research contextualization to things like the Great Migration, which was a major event in the United States, or even she does hint back to even slavery, which is the the massive, I don't even know what pound elephant in this whole discussion. I mean, it's I don't know. That history isn't dead and buried, so to speak. Like that, it. I just think those that lineage of that is too obvious to be ignored, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Do you think she does enough in the beginning? Because I mean, I respected that she acknowledged the controversy, maybe of some of her arguments, or maybe that her perspective might be a little controversial. I have not found it to be honestly, but I'm also I don't bristle at kind of talking through it this way um, right. as much as I would have myself supported. The, some of the core defund things that were happening in, in current events or whatever. I also haven't found myself bristling too much at any of this. It's not like the lives of detectives. It's like the most popular thing to talk about in pop culture, <laughs> how many TV shows are about. It. So it's not like I have a, you know, I've watched The Wire. I, I'm familiar with cop lingo or just like the general ebbs and flows. Do you think that she did enough history contextualization? Because she, 
I, I don't know, based on her proclivities and maybe even her skill as like an investigative journalist, it seems like she wants to get to the cop life right away. Like she she seems really interested in the ebbs and flows of a cop's life, a detective, I should say. So do you think she did enough history building or like contextualization? In the very first chapter? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mm, probably not, but I also at the very beginning was... The first like couple pages that I read, I was not sure about her ideas about uh, the police because of the way that she kind of portrayed Skaggs in particular. It was like very mm-hmm, nebulous yeah. for me. I was like, so she does she like Skaggs? Does she not like Skaggs? Like, what's going on here? The the way that he's so matter of fact in in his treatment of um, of Barbara Pritchett. And like just right, hand her the right. shoes, right? And and it seems almost like cold hearted in, in his manner. And even the very first page, um, uh, on the very first line is it says Los Angeles Police Detective John Skaggs carried the Skaggs carried the shoebox aloft like a waiter bearing a platter. That seems like a very odd comparison to me. If you are supportive of Skaggs as a person, mm hmm. Well, so, yeah, he's yeah. We come to learn about how kind of matter of fact, and I think they call him hard or hardened a lot. He's right. you know he's like a nice enough guy and doesn't he's not like a, an aggressive or seemingly rude person, but that he's also just matter of fact in all manners or in right. all matters. Yeah, yeah. The, we learn that that later, but in the very beginning, I was. Uh, I was just thrown about like I, I I was immediately like oh I don't think that she likes the this police officer and then like come to read her argument and I was like but does she I guess <laughs> yeah so, yeah yeah we'll so, dig into uh, that a little more for sure yeah so the 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 ideas of of some of the historical context uh, I don't think that she really got into that I think she was more focused on like laying out her her main argument like the thesis for her book um and she'll probably and she'll go more into the history aspect later but um Mm -hmm. i was just when i was reading it my reaction immediately was just like i was just thrown about like how to think that she thought about these people so i was just like kind of confused for yeah definitely pages (laughs) yeah and um, I also noticed, I don't know if, if you noticed it as well, is um, that she, that Leovi uses Skaggs' last name in the, the police officers. She uses all their last names, but um, starting in this first chapter, but um, Devon, the the victim, the murder victim, she uses the first name. And she does the same later with... Um, with Bryant Tonelli. Mm-hmm. And no, so I, I thought I, I just probably read it as professional versus civilian, you know, or like, but even with the other civilians, um, I don't know. I, cause with the, the parents of the victims as well, she used their last names. Oh, okay. I, she also, <laughs> she calls him John. What's the Terrell? Uh, what's his first name? Which one, Wally? The, Wally Tanelli's? Yeah, Wally or T- oh Tanelli, not Terrell. Tanelli. Yeah. Um, I no, I didn't pick up on this at all. I don't. I he, she says John Skaggs enough for me not to. I, <laughs> I don't know. It just read like shorthand to me, or like that's his title, I guess. But no, feel free to dig into it. I have this pick zero percent. I would say I noticed this. 
Yeah, it's, um, and I, I noticed it actually throughout the what we've read so far anyway, but uh, I first noticed it on page three when she uses Skaggs' last name, Detective Skaggs. And, and this is why I thought at first that she didn't also, uh, th- that's also why I thought that maybe she didn't like um, Skaggs is because she's so, she immediately uses his last name, which is like more impersonal. And then when she speaks of Devin or Devon, who's uh, the victim, it's the first name, which is a lot more personal. Um, and so I, I, that also fed into some of my confusion at first until I, I continued reading and I was like, oh, well, all the victims, when she's not listing the victims like she does in some of the chapters, um, when she's not listing them by their first and last name, when she's just speaking of the victims, it, then it's only the first names and then everybody else's last name. Gotcha. Yeah. Which I thought was interesting. It's a, it's a good way to... It shows how she's like kind of building not just like a an argument based on like history and fact but she's also pulling in some of that emotional aspect and when you make it more personal try to make the the victim seem more more personal in that way Mm -hmm. so we we move on um there's chapters two through four which we'll quickly cover um and in these chapters uh this is where we actually see uh some of leo v's more narrative style um mm-hmm. where we get a lot more of the, the description imagery um and some more of the the insights into the way that's uh specifically the police officers are thinking um so it's it's almost it reads almost like a novel in some ways um specifically uh we see the scene of Bryant Tonelli's murder which is really descriptive um and then we also get some of Skaggs's early life and the his beginnings as an officer followed by Wally Tonelli who is Bryant Tonelli's father mm-hmm. we get some of Wally Tonelli's early life and his beginnings as an officer as well um, and Leo V also cont- uh, tries to include some insights into the realities of working as an officer, uh, specifically as a homicide detective, um, uh, because both um, Wally Tonelli and Skaggs, um, at one point at least, were homicide detectives, both. Yeah, no, definitely. That's It's a pretty thorough background check on both, so to speak. A little bi- biography. Yeah, and it shows some similarities. Like, she she takes pains to kind of point out some similarities between the two as far as, like, uh, personality and, like, w- you know, how the certain personality traits help to, to make them successful as homicide detectives, but also, like, uh, kind of pointing out, like, why some of those traits are necessary to be good as a homicide detective. Um, and the... And how tough it is um, mm-hmm. for homicide detectives to kind of like have a life outside of their work, really, especially in the uh, in the area where both uh, where Skaggs works and where um, Tinelli lives. Yeah, she returns to this trope too. Not, not even that it's a trope; it's obviously just a true part of the logistics of you know detective and cop life. But yeah. she does, you know, the traits she outlines. Right, there's some 
pretty telling ones on 32 mentions a lot how they're fewer college educated but they're smart yep. and energetic she brings up the energy thing a lot on that same page dd tonelli mentions that they all have quote a touch of add in her family which she mentions a lot it's that you have to be energetic enthused kind of have like a, a, a motor that always runs and mm-hmm. you know the next paragraph of course it made them entirely uniquely suited for a job that was carried out almost entirely out of doors and involved sleepless nights relentless bursts of activity in the ability to move from one situation to the next quickly without leaving too much behind. So you've got to be smart and quick, not necessarily bookish or terribly analytical, a good memory, a talent for improvisation, a keen interest in people, and a buoyancy of spirit. So I think, and she returns to this often enough, she mentions in a few different chapters and occasions about like, you know, the tests aren't very good. It's like, who cares if you can pass the detective exam? It doesn't, it's not really relevant. Everything's going to be learned in the moment. It's probably one of the strong I don't know threads that she's kind of pulled on noting and she hasn't gotten to in these terms but let me apply my own thinking to it it's kind of getting to that point of like if you do want to reform the police or look at how they're doing their job or something it's it is an awfully difficult thing to pinpoint who is a good one and who is not. Uh, it's something yeah. that Skaggs also bristles against, too, because he seems to notice or seems to have an eye later in the book for detectives and cops who would on paper look great. But he just does not have respect for them because they don't have the fire, the drive. So, yeah, she brings that. She gets that idea going early. Yeah. Um Skaggs in particular, I think, put it well um, at one point later uh, Mm -hmm. where it looks like the system is working, but in reality, it's doing nothing. It's just busy Mm -hmm. work. Um, So the ability to to show that you've made a call, that you've done the legwork without actually doing any walking. Right. Skaggs is also physically there mm-hmm. yeah yeah <laughs> walking around everywhere um yeah I, I think that that was a very important point for her to to make pretty early and that she continues to kind of drive home as she definitely. as she continues yeah yeah definitely um yeah so uh another thing um that she kind of talks about too uh regarding like how effective the police or ineffective the police are um, specifically with these um, underserved uh, communities um, she talks about some of the the structural changes some of the changes in policy historically in 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 specifically that police department in um, in Los Angeles but also nationwide and one of the things that she points to is um, the idea of proactive policing uh, which yes. I thought was a, a pretty important distinction. So she says she makes the point like this is an example of something that looks good on paper, right? We like the word proactive. We don't want something reactive, which is what mm-hmm. she says the department um, is saying that homicide detectives, especially, yeah, are just right. reactive rather than proactive. So they're not stopping crime; they're just reacting to the crime. And then she goes on to talk about like. How in reality that's not actually helpful <laughs> for mm-hmm. these communities yeah. because proactive policing leads to um, racial stereotyping, leads to even more distrust within a community. Yeah, <laughs> and, definitely. Um, 
yeah, all these other things. So it's it's just another example that she points to where she's like, mm, yeah, I mean, something that looks good on paper, but hey, guys, you're you're just not not doing it right. <laughs> totally. The other thread that kind of interlocks with that one, though, it's a pretty good narrative nonfiction work. So it's interlocking a lot of threads, right? Trying to make a complex argument for how this problem is not getting solved. Right. But the media comes up a couple of times or at least... Oh, yeah. And even it doesn't even mean the local L.A. media, obviously, big cities in the U.S. like L.A. and New York City take on like a larger than life impression to the rest of the country. It's, yeah. you know, there's all the movies and TV take place there. So it's kind of like everybody has a, a strange skewed view of what those places must be like. So when yeah. she says violence, she means like nationally, not just like how the L.A. news reporters talk about things. But, right. yeah, think of all the 80s and 90s terms. They talk about like this really it was a really high violence time or high murder rate in the 90s in LA and stuff. Um, they keep calling it the beast or the great, not the great time. What was it called? Like the awful time or the, the, mo- not the, the monsters, the one name for it. The monsters, just the idea of this, these under looked at under examined communities where there's a lot of endemic violence, um, right? like self-contained violence. And anyway, but there, these are some of the terms on 37 that she throws out there. She she mentions how everyone gets grouped into gang violence is, and it becomes a euphemism. It's purpose to being labeled their loved ones as throwaway people or otherwise diminish their standing as, quote, innocent civilians. Um, they talk about how gang member, one of activists, uh, Lawanda Hawkins, says gang member is the new N-word. She says phrases like at risk were worse, rolling victims and perpetrators into one indistinguishable mass. And then she there's a woman um, whose son was killed and she says my son was murdered murdered trying to emphasize the you know barbarity and everything of it 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 is important too because i think leovi is pretty careful with her own words there are certain topics i think she's a bit shallow on overall which we'll hit in as the chapters move along but i do think that the la- the emphasis on the language the how it all kind of ties in in subtle ways. I was glad that bit made it in there because it's not the first thing you'd think of, but also it's <laughs> when you see those terms on the page, it is easy to think about how often in your brain those things would come to mind when you're just kind of right. like, oh, there was a shooting? Like, oh, it was gang, gang stuff. Or like, oh, okay, it was a gang shoot. You know, it's and the stuff as she untangles is like, a lot of these gang shootings, quote unquote, are just mistaken identity shootings. They're not even, right. they might've had some kind of gang origin or something, which she tries to unpack that social dynamic. But yeah, so that the euphemisms, the terms, the media stuff, I thought it was, yeah, it was good to get that in point in early. Yeah. Um, the, especially for me, when I read the part about um, the importance of, of labels and words and word choice specifically, I was like, yeah, that's, that makes sense to my, my literary brain and how we can mm-hmm. uh, use that information, especially like when you think about propaganda and stuff like that. It's all about words and it's all about the perception of right. stuff. And so and that ties in, I think, with some of her later arguments about um, why there hasn't been a huge push to try to address specifically the perception of of what she calls black on black violent crime um Mm -hmm. is because it i mean it doesn't it it goes back to those racist roots specifically she talks about like the the southern criminal system regarding um during the jim crow era especially um regarding um the black community and how it actually like 
they they sowed the 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 seeds of injustice there on purpose and and wanted like that violence against um, each other in the, the the white community wanted the violence within the the black community so that they could continue to insist that they are the dominant race right the whatever um, so I thought that was a really great like literary way to look at that but also a very commonsensical and emotional way to look at that that I thought she did a really great job with mm-hmm. um, yeah so I yeah. appreciated that yeah um, definitely I do think that her when she invokes southern US history then ties it to migration patterns and stuff that has all felt shallow comparative or compared to how thoroughly she looks at like the day to day hour to hour kind of grind of detective and cop work but then again i do think her major thinking or concern is kind of like let me really embed you in the lives of real police so that you can be the judge i mean she she does slant things obviously and she has some opinions kind of stick out maybe but yeah it does the history context stuff does it feels like it's in another book which you know i think given what she's writing is fine it's just a a couple times been a bit fast but yeah I, I agree. There's been some some drawing there, which I I made note of um, later. Um, yeah, of course. As well, but yeah, the um, her her main thesis though she's she's pretty she's been sticking pretty tough uh, hard to it because she's aside from like the narrative aspects when she's uh, giving us descriptions of these horrific crime scenes and stuff like that, um, she she really sticks to it so. She um, on page forty one. I'm thinking of there's. Uh, she talks about the idea of of lawlessness, which I, I yeah. was a word that just it's it's. I suppose like a motif. I suppose almost in this um, mm-hmm. in this book, where she's she talks about like how the idea of lawlessness, as far as how the law has failed the this community in particular. Uh, it creates a a new kind of order she says specifically so mm-hmm. it, by not having a a justice system in place that serves this community in a way that it feels safe they then have to create their own legal system which is why you have vengeance vigilanteism and it's and she makes the point that it's not just the black community but throughout history and here she brings in history again where like during medieval times and stuff like that that this is something that happens in all cultures where they feel that there is not a justice system where they do have to have like that they have to take matters into their own hands to say, and I thought that was um, that was an interesting argument to make, um, yeah. and and an interesting way to kind of integrate that in, through history because I hadn't thought about that either. So what I like about this is that like there's a lot of ideas that she's throwing at me that I'm like I haven't thought about it like that or I hadn't thought to make that connection before. So. Mm-hmm. So I like that aspect. Yeah, of, she went. Of that. She went real big political ph- philosophy three hundred one um, a couple times, which we don't yeah. have to unpack the kind of underpinnings of the belief system she's outlining. But you're right; it it does become a kind of key thesis or key 
uh, pillar of her, her thesis, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> key, I was going to say key tenet of it, but it was more like a key pillar upholding it, which is just that, yeah, where essentially her argument is where the state does not have total monopoly on violence, people will become either break off into factions and you'll get factional justice and re- retribution, retaliation, violence, where gangs, for example, can fill that void, fill that role. Uh, right. You know, and then it becomes a lot about settling scores and revenge, less about perhaps following, you know, prescribed codes or something. And so it really, yeah, her essential argument is that a state has to have monopoly over its violence. If it seeds that or if it shows that it's not upholding that, then this is the, you know, reaction that comes from it. I will just say broadly that that does not have to be accepted. The book accepts it. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think her case, it's odd because I both read it in a bunch of dormant thoughts from my college education like got you know lit a flame again <laughs> so I, I remember <laughs> when I would see those passages I guess all I would say is because again I just don't think it's th- the purpose of this pod or reading this book to like tackle this I guess again I would just emphasize that you don't have to accept that those things are true um Yeah, that would be because she doesn't bother going into she doesn't both sides it, you know, for a book that both sides is a good amount of topics. (laughs) She never both sides the idea that that there are other human relations and interconnections societally other than just where there's no law, people will kill. And so (laughs) it's, you know, anyway, that's it it is interesting, but she doesn't have interest in unpacking it. So key to her. Yeah. 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 Um. Another thing that I, I noticed in, in this particular section is um, that I appreciated was that she she so there there's the narrative style um, which I appreciated and and I knew that when you and I had talked about this book before I began reading it you had mentioned that it was specifically a, a narrative nonfiction mm-hmm. um, so I was expecting something along the lines of like Eric Larson or, or something like that yeah um, <laughs> well, it's yeah it's not dissimilar. <laughs> Yeah. Um, uh, so I was, I noticed that she actually has an allusion to Philip Marlowe. Um, I don't know mm-hmm. if you've read Raymond Chandler at all. No. Oh. Um, okay. Well, uh, go for it. <laughs> you may help us understand. <laughs> I can be your test case. Yeah. Um, well, Philip Marlowe is uh, so Raymond Chandler wrote like he he and he's the the godfather. He's the father of um, of noir detective fiction, and Philip Marlowe is mm-hmm. the um, the detective that all these uh, black and white um, detective noir stories are based on. Like Philip Marlowe, he's like cool cucumber who's like smoking a cigar and he's like he's got the femme fatale all those tropes and everything um that uh raymond chandler i don't know if he he created them but i mean he certainly embraced them um so i i just i love that um and i've noticed some other uh literary allusions throughout this um this writing that I just I, I stop and I see it and I'm like, ooh, I like that. <laughs> it's like my little mm-hmm. my, my little book nerd thing going like, ooh, yay, you're well read like me. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> I love yeah. it. Fair, um, fair. But <laughs> this illusion in particular, um, this is on page twenty seven, she's comparing um Philip Marlowe to Skaggs. 
Um, he was not a lonely Marlowe and had no noir in his makeup. He was a sports enthusiast, a surfer, sunny and optimistic, a happily married family man, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it's just like a, a slight allusion there. But um, I, I, I got the reference and I really appreciated that she threw that in there. And, um, and, it, and it made me appreciate even more her, the, the I suppose, literary aspect of this work so far. Definitely. Yeah. She's, she has a bit of a literary ear. I know. Yeah. So I don't know what the <laughs> proper kind of key is for that. Yeah. She's got the literary fingers, right? You know, typing <laughs> away. I assume she types the things she writes be uncommon. If not, let's keep moving through chapters here. Chapters five through seven cover a few things. Mostly at this point, the book transitions to Skagg's early days where he gets transferred and he works as a homicide detective. One thing that's throughout the whole book we haven't really mentioned is that Skaggs is determined not to leave the south side of Los Angeles. He, It's obvious that to take a career promotion, you would go elsewhere and do other stuff, and he just refuses to leave. He thinks it's worth it that he wants to, out of principle, stay there. Uh, in the meantime, Officer uh, Wally, and you're calling it, is it Tanel? You've been doing... Um, so I pronounced it Tanelli based on... Oh, because the E. Well, yeah, and then um, Dee Dee, yeah. the, the daughter, right, Dee Dee, she was talking about how um, she actually would pronounce her name Tanel so that because they have, um, because of their skin color, she she would actually pronounce it Tanel to make it seem like she's not Italian, if I remember. I'll have to find that. So, oh, in okay. my mind, it was Tanelli because it actually, like, pronounced it in the book. Gotcha. Cool. Um, I, so, I take your word for it. I don't remember. Might be the opposite. It might be Tanell, and she was saying Tanelli. I don't... But Let's I'm stick, pretty we'll sure stick with Tanelli. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> anyway, Sorry, either way, guys. Th- this <laughs> is when the development happens that he decides in a crucial decision to keep his family in the city, to live near the Watts neighborhood where a lot of the things happen, to basically live in South L.A., which is predominantly black and Hispanic. So it really covers both of these men, again, Skaggs and Tanelli, Wally. They're both principled, well-meaning. They're meticulous people. They're living their lives in an upstanding way. And then... You know, not in these chapters, but pretty soon the, the story, as it is, will interlink their lives pretty inextricably, too. This mm-hmm. is the section that gets into some important ideas about community and the kind of outsider versus insider perception of the community that this book covers, which, again, is mostly southern L.A., predominantly black neighborhoods, historically so, in, in that part of the world. Uh, the one thing I would mention, and I think this, I, I don't know if I'll pull the quote for it or if I'll just summarize, but mm-hmm. there is a quote at some point about how a lot of outsider talk around how to how to resolve this. How do we improve these places? How do we make lives better here and more comfortable and like not as, you know, how do we imp- basically just improve this? Uh, often talk about like, ah, oh, we got to rally the community or there's no connections between people down there. Oh, you got to make them care about each other more and all this kind of outside talk. When the literal opposite is true, no other place in the United States would you know people around you more. It's, they are the most interlocked, the most interconnected. The, like, you know, if you think about a suburban wherever in the U.S., do you talk to your neighbors every day? Like, no way. I don't ever talk to my neighbors. As just You can use me as a case study in this. Whereas, obviously, as the detectives and cops lay out, a lot of the people in these neighborhoods are deeply interconnected. They know the very small happenings in lives 
lives. They know friends of friends. A lot of there's a lot of family and generational transitions and stuff, and it's very interconnected. Sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. As they mentioned, revenge and sort of like feuds can blow up in ways that are definitely for the worse so the you know it's not all obviously beautiful connections and and nice things but yeah i just thought that was a critical point to make because it does get into the social dynamics and how it can be hard to kind of crack in as an you know the cops are viewed as outsiders or kind of a hostile force and it can be difficult for them to you know canvas get witnesses all that stuff yeah, that was um, that was a point that she made that I also picked up on that was, I thought, really important because the, the perception, too, um, that she kind of outlines in, in some of the previous chapters, but she, she more fully outlines here, is like looking into the community as outsiders, we have these um, ideas about... Or some people will have these ideas about, you know, oh, well, they're... They, they they must be just a violent community and they just must be this and must be this all these assumptions uh because we don't get a lot of media coverage right and we we also are not a part of that group and and yeah. we're not having conversations with people openly as she points out um and so the to point out that actually like those perceptions are just you know wrong that this is very much a community who uh, like the term that I thought was interesting was like play cousin and this is my play cousin this is my play sister which means like just a right, friend right. but like you're so closely your families are so closely intertwined that you are basically family um, right. I just I, I thought that that was a um, a really interesting point to make and something that was really important to to point out the the fallacies of our of our of some of these people's uh, perceptions about that community yeah, no, definitely. It's It was kind of a critical point to make, not only to, again, unlock the social dynamics, uh, because in the investigative work, that does become a big factor, obviously, so it's kind of practical to talk about it. But right. it, it's, it's like the media discussion point we made earlier. It's just another layer of misperception almost like the public at large, meaning the rest of the country, it becomes rather euphemistic about it and develops shorthand that's just not true and, or like right. even just perceptions that just aren't true. And I think, yeah, at some point she says something, Leovi, almost as strong as to the effect of like, there's literally no other places interconnected. There's no other places in the United States that could be so insular, so on a day-to-day basis where you have to encounter so many people you might know. <laughs> like there's just... It's just incomparable in that way. And so it's, yeah, deeply interconnected. Uh, Again, I think for the better and for the worse, the book makes the case kind of for both. So, yeah, let's hit let's hit a style note. I got a question for you on pages 64 to five. She does something she returns to often. And I think this is her showing kind of her flexing that she's like an L.A. Times journalist and has connections and can do her own surveys and stuff. Mm -hmm. But she just at times throughout this book just peppers the text with quotes from a detective, an interview with somebody, and it, it's very rapid fire. I mean, to obviously she's trying to prove a point, <laughs> drive something home. On 64 to 5, it's about, it's just like she must have interviewed so many people. You know, it's a quote right. every paragraph about this is what cops would say about the community. They view them this way, they view them this way, and I'm not, I'm not going to read them all. But these two pages is essentially the local police dealing with their own stereotypes and trying to understand the people they try and serve, who's to blame, who's not to blame. Some of 
of their comments are racist, some are not, some are accepting, some are not, some are, you know, being very um, empathetic, some are very not empathetic. So one says, when you prosecute a gang homicide, you get two for the price of one because a gang member gets killed and one in prison. Right. So it's so it really just runs the gamut of like heinously inhuman or just kind of disconnected from humanity. The others are, again, more trying to be sympathetic, empathetic. But do you find that style choice? Because she returns to this many times. It, it feels to me like, again, flexing her contacts, kind of showing the embedded nature of her work. I think mostly it works. I found it in this page... I don't know. It's not insensitive. I, she also, again, doesn't stop for too long to investigate or question some of their perceptions. She more just wants to present them to you. So I think I think overall it kind of works, quote unquote, whatever that means. But it does at times feel I thought these pages were as good a time as any to discuss it because I could see some people thinking it's crass or I don't know, something. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was like it showed. um in, in those two pages, like, um, several kind of, like, back and forth, like, well, this person thinks this way, but then this person says this with a caveat and blah, blah, blah. She also, I noticed yeah. in, in those particular quotes, makes mention of their race, of each officer's race each time. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, and she, I don't know why, but, like, I... In, in those two pages, she, she did not... Act, anyway, she didn't point out that any of the officers were... Um, were black so it was like she was only mm -hmm. talking to the white officers and like a couple of the Hispanic officers but right. um, no no black officers and no Asian officers either so I thought that was also interesting and I wasn't yeah. sure why that and in one of the officers she didn't mention what that person's race was at all so I was like oh okay so that's oh, breaking that? from the, the, yeah. the mold there yeah and that one I missed, too. There, there's another segment I didn't pull pages or quotes for, but that I remember, where when, again, it's in this section, Wally decides to stay in South L.A., put his roots there, own a house, all that, lives in a, you know, by many accounts, nice neighborhood or, you know, mm -hmm. strip of land, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a, a long section about how the common move is for the police to not live where they serve. There's arguments back and forth about whether that's healthy or not healthy to, like, live in the neighborhood you serve as, as a police officer. And so it does feel to me kind of of a piece with that, because even her point in that is that there is kind of a miniature example of... I don't know what the term would be, not flight, but that the officers of color in the LAPD, even most of them just do not want to live the places they serve, even if it right. is, even if it's demographically connected to them or something to phrase it that way. Even right. then they just think, no, no one wants to live where we serve, basically. Opens right, up yeah. a whole, yeah, that argument is its own. Again, I don't know if she spends a ton of time on it. It was a couple pages, but that's a messy notion in and of itself. Oh yeah, it's definitely layered there because the the fear is for them that uh, one of the reasons that that's given about not living where you serve is like fear of reprisal. Like you don't want yeah yeah if you arrest somebody or get somebody in trouble, you don't want them to then know exactly where you live and exact revenge on you or your family and stuff like that. So. Um, that was like the big reason that stood out to me. I know that there's several other reasons why, um, but again, it's 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 a uh, it's an interesting argument to to take on because there's just so many 
so many different ideas that go into that and so many different reasons for both yeah. both sides of the argument that it's how could you ever resolve that <laughs> like that's just yeah and she's yeah. pretty content with that issue and a few others throughout the book to kind of just leave it I, it's not that it wasn't even handed i thought it yeah. was fair and everything but it's also on some of those topics that again could comprise a chapter of thought in a different book this book wants the narrative to keep pushing wants the investigation yeah. to to kind of propel uh be propulsive <laughs> to propel <laughs> would be the verb <laughs> anyway so yeah i just thought i'd mention that yeah um that's a good one to mention um i also um found it interesting at the beginning from pages like 47 to 48 she talks about how historically national murderers regardless of race they they don't really get punished a whole lot because it's something like what did mm-hmm. she say like 40 percent um i think at the height of like catching murderers um but it's it's like 40 percent on on a on a good average um, is what you would get as far as people who committed murders that you could actually like catch and prosecute successfully um, on a national level across all communities. So that's not right. Not a great <laughs> stat to to look at. But then also when she talks about like some of the numbers being flubbed um, in order to make it seem like it's not as. Um, as I suppose terrifying out there um, where mm-hmm. some of some numbers in Chicago specifically, she said um, during one time they did not report like a whole bunch of murders and just kind of were like, Oh, you did those things. Those weren't really murders. Like, and, uh, yeah. and then the, the idea of, um, and how those numbers, even though it's like, yes, on a national scale, we, we don't generally, we're not generally catching every single murderer out there, um, right. aside from like the big cases that make it to the to the news and stuff like that. A lot of the time, which hey, is another reason that the media should be reporting, according to her, on um, definitely on on these um, other cases. But the the fact that the statistics that we are given that she has even researched, she's like she had to go back and just double check everything because we we can't believe all the sources um you know the the police and and the politicians who get involved with that as well who are reporting these numbers we have to go back and look at those numbers ourselves and and do our own research because they're they're not always reporting accurately they're finding ways to you know as stats do they're not just numbers they they they're often given context and and molded yeah, to fit a particular yeah. perspective so for sure it it's the same be with perfect mm-hmm. yeah definitely yeah it's a good point so um i guess we'll continue i, I think we're we're good mm-hmm. right cool. yeah um so then in the next chapters chapters eight through nine um these chapters talk about what she calls the shadow legal system and again she goes back to the idea of lawlessness so law she talks about how lawlessness specifically is a cause for gangs and a cause for some of the unspoken and unwritten moral expectations in in any community but she's talking specifically about Mm -hmm. this community that feels that they are underserved by the national justice system and um we are also introduced to Skaggs' new recruits 
um, in these chapters. Um, right. Who are that? That he pulls one of them, and the the guy that he pulls um, pulls his friend in too, which we have only seen like twice. So. Yeah, a bit skeptical <laughs> so, of the friend. An odd yeah. <laughs> in transition, and it's yeah, it doesn't have the traits that jump out to the other right. officers. Um, but by by introducing this chapter uh, and Skag's new re- recruit, she's also touching on the ideas of like how how uh these these police officers are actually they're not they're not trained as well as they should be within the context of the work that they're doing so they're given like standard practices they're given these policies um but the mentorship the actual walking the streets and stuff like that um and and seeing and interacting with the people that's where the education the 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 real worth of the education is which Mm -hmm. um which is part of Skaggs' style, and also it's part of the LV's point that, um, you know, about how some of the policies of of the police department are are not great, um, and they're failing not just the communities around them, but also the police officers that um, that they're meant to protect as well. Definitely, it's the witnesses part is a nice. It's like nice in that it's an important aside. Again, she doesn't spend too much time on it, but it does become a structural financial problem in a sense. Obviously, there's also the practical problem of because of the interconnected communal lives of a lot of the neighborhoods in South L.A., people know who you are people know you know they know friends of friends or you know fake cousins of fake cousins or whatever the connections are so it's just very difficult to get people to they say in quotes snitch a lot in this book they right yeah because she treats that like it's not a known term i feel like that's again we have so much cop media in popular culture that i feel i feel like that's not a term that needs to be explained to any human adult in america but (laughs) that's okay anyway so yeah that's that there's a big fear of snitching culture obviously because of retaliations the social dynamics, all that. It was a pretty important little aside just to show if you have these crimes that really rely on witness statements and almost nothing else, that's the make or break aspect of the case, then it becomes mm-hmm. kind of maddening to solve if unless you can provide those safety nets, protections for those people. Yeah, and the and the safety nets, the, the protections that are afforded witnesses, they it's almost it's inadequate in a lot of ways is what she's also pointing out in that they have to agree to testify first, which if they agree to testify and they agree to be a witness, people are going to find out they don't give them that protection. They don't remove them from a possible dangerous um, situation until after they testify and stuff. So it's like, there, there's like a waiting period where they're just like sitting ducks essentially they, they could be yeah. in, in a yeah. lot of danger and they they don't have a real they're just being used as tools they're not being treated as as uh possible victims as well or as people who you know are are assets in a lot of ways so it's yeah totally yeah so she she makes a point of that she's like you know the these witnesses are necessary in order to really close on a prosecution, but they're not given any respect and any any kind of um, help in order to ensure that they that they will testify and that they can testify. So 
yeah, that was yeah. that was a pretty interesting claim to make too. So. And an important aside, and I just pulled notice this quote from this section on. 80. Shall we just summarize her thesis of communal justice quickly? Yeah. She, she yeah. does spell it out. This is when she does come pretty clear with the, her idea here. It's the, the tendency for people to band together when state power is weak is so inevitable that it can even seem innate. The latent causes of faction, wrote founding father James Madison, are sown in the nature of man. Without law, people use violence collectively to settle scores and right wrongs and commonly refer to violence as their own law. Whenever, or Sorry, wherever law is absent or undeveloped, wherever it is shabby, ineffective, or disputed, some form of self-policing or communal justice usually emerges. And so police prosecutors and politicians in L.A. blame gangs for the homicide problem. They portrayed gangs as formidable nations of organized crime or as an exotic new social disease. But among street officers in South Bureau, doubts sometimes surfaced. A sense of um, what was breathlessly termed gang culture was pretty ordinary group behavior. So a, a crucial point there, again, she's trying to make these broad connections. She does bring up a couple examples from Russia and other cultures throughout history of these, you know, informal systems. Afghanistan in the modern uh, world probably provides the clearest. Oh, geez, that's complex, too, though. But there, there is a complex social system of law and non-law there that you could dig into if you want. I'm just trying to think of like a current day example that could maybe, you know provide a case study for this but yeah that's as closest to an outright thesis as she comes again whether it's compelling or not she presents it as she says so innate that it's it's almost innately obvious i again you could quibble with that and there's some you know philosophical and political traditions that might do so but that is yeah clearly where her point of view is and you know the the interview she gets with officers and detectives backs up the idea that these are pretty you know easy to understand social structures in one way but then of course breaking into them helping them trying to work around them is a completely different matter yeah um did you ever watch the movie lawless no what's the premise of it maybe i have Uh, it the name doesn't sound familiar at all uh, it's um it's got Tom Hardy and Shia LaBeouf and it's during the time when mm. um moonshining was like so it was during prohibition mm-hmm. and and so moonshining was like super lucrative at the time and yeah, so yeah um so these these brothers start their own uh, moonshining business and they are kind of like their own police force as well so oh, okay yeah so it the as I'm reading, because she uses the word lawlessness constantly, and then talking about right. um, a shadow legal system and um, all these other ideas of like uh, vengeance and uh, vigilantism and uh, mm-hmm. kind of taking care of your own business um, and, and stuff like that, it just keeps reminding me of that movie. No, um, definitely. <laughs> you can find examples, plenty of examples of this, and it's see the thing that would devolve quickly, would make this conversation devolve quickly, is then just to get into definitions of law or how social bonds are formed and when those right. become codified, and that's why I didn't really want to crack it open, so to speak, yeah. just because she has a. I think she's just assuming a lot, which is perfectly fine. You're when you're making a nonfiction type of case, you're of course allowed to do so. But I just yeah, it because she doesn't tug at those 
underpinnings or tug at those threads that she's resting the argument upon. I just thought mm-hmm. I'd mention it anyway. So, all right, let's move to the final section of the book we've covered so far. That'd be chapters 10 through 15. This is pretty crucial, I think. It's really, <laughs> if you want to be ungenerous, it's where the book starts, basically. <laughs> it's like the rest <laughs> of the book was just kind of some light setup and social theories. And then, so we're finally introduced fully into the case that drives the rest of the book. It is the murder of Bryant Tonelli, who's the son of the police officer from early Earlier in the story, Wally, it's his son. We get all of his backstory here. He's shown to be a really sweet, family-loving son who has a lot of talents and proclivities. Just unfortunately, none of them relate to schoolwork, and he struggles with that a lot, struggles paying attention and doing his homework and things. And so, yeah, it gives kind of a preview of what his life could have been. And then as the you know narrative obviously has to go, given its nature, he is killed randomly, murdered randomly. Seemingly, though, I, we don't know the outcome this early in the book, of course, probably due to a mistaken identity case because of his hat logo, which is a gang affiliated thing. It, the, the grief of his family is documented. The police department effects kind of ripple out from there. There's a lot of effects within the police department because of this. And then eventually, basically, the case gets haggled over and run into a dead end. Not in such a negative way, just kind of runs out of ideas. And then lo and behold, this section ends with John Skaggs getting the case, inheriting the case, starting to work it. And so we will see, you know, in the next part of the book, what Skaggs can do with the case. So many things to cover. Narratively, was it the best part of the story so far for you? I think it was for me. Now, granted, there's an obvious emotional manipulation happening because as soon as chapter 10 picks up and you're starting to get all of these nice biographical details about Bryant... It just, it's, you know, the dread hangs over it. You just know how it's going to conclude, right? We knew from the beginning that there, he has a gunshot wound to the head and is presumed dead. So, yeah, it's the emotional stakes. It does feel manipulative, but also I guess it's effective. I couldn't hide from it. It was when I was reading about, you know, his personality, the things he loved, the little quirks of his life, you know, it's it's just very human. It's very thorough, I guess. It, it, as thorough as it can be in, you know, a chapter or two. And um, I thought it was narratively pretty strong, if not like just manipulative, I guess, <laughs> is what I would say. Uh, yeah, uh, definitely manipulative, but um, I, I enjoyed it. Um, it was... Mm-hmm. I, I enjoy her her narrative pieces a lot because I think that she's got a great eye for for setting and for details like that to really pull at your heartstrings. Like, you're, like reading the narrative pieces, I'm just like... I'm like on the verge of tears all the time because it's just so horrific and I just I, I feel so bad for for these these kids and and these mm-hmm. these victims. So I, I I appreciate what she she does there. Um it, yeah. it but it is very jarring in some ways with like some of the the historical context that she includes and and her philosophical arguments and stuff. It's like one minute you're like uh reading about this horrific crime scene and then you're like getting like into the abstract ideas of like philosophy right afterwards yeah. just like whoa <laughs> yeah examples yeah. of gang law in russia in medieval russia yeah. or something <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 it's like yeah, it could be a bit I, jarring. <laughs> of all the, I only picked one moment out from the chapters about Brian about his life, and it was from 108. It's such an uh oh moment though because 
again, you you know where it's not even foreshadowing. You know where his story will end, and so you're right. waiting for the cause and effect dominoes to fall, waiting to see what will trigger certain things. And when he meets his new friends, you know, from the neighborhood, because his parents have sent him to private school. He's been, quote unquote, sheltered from the kind of Watts area, South L.A. area he lives in. But yeah, when he meets the new friends, there's a passage on 109, actually. It's Josh, Walter, and Chris wanted to toughen up Bryant. They threw play punches at him, trying to get him to jab and dodge. They tried to educate him in street codes. Bryant was too kind, raised too well. He was nowhere near us, Chris said, so far above them, he meant. And then... Ariel or Ariel, his girlfriend, was so unfamiliar with middle-class mores that she was amazed by the simple fact that Brian got up early every morning. She knew hardly anyone who did that. It changed us so much as a group, Ariel recalled, or Ariel recalled. We never had anyone like him around before long she and Brian were dating. And then before, again, he runs through some things. He had never drunk alcohol. He was astoundingly naive. He'd never, never kissed a girl and didn't know how. He did his work and was punctual. He wasn't aggressive. He wasn't loud. It's interesting because on 108, those quotes are from, it, of course, it's littered with stereotype. And then uh, and then at the same time, it's literally quotes from the friends who he was friends with. So it's, I don't know. I, where, those weren't quotes, to be fair. That's the author summarizing. But she interviewed those, you know, check the sources in the back. It's like she interviewed his friends. So... These are the things that they literally remark about him, what made him unique, different. Of course, then she ties that into some pretty common tropes. She, As she words, the middle class kind of qualities or mores, um, you could phrase it that way if you want to. Yeah, it's, I don't know, just as soon as they came into the story, it seemed like you knew where it had to go or something like that. The odd part is it doesn't seem like they will be the cause. It's, it does seem like his, his killing was even more random. It's not like they knew people who got him into trouble. Um, right. But it just, yeah, that hit me as a real, uh-oh, kind of moment for him just because it bent, I don't know, the course of his life. Also, the school stuff kind of hit me because I knew students not, I'm not saying demographically like him. I'm saying personality, attention span, intelligence kind of wise. I, you know, have known students like him where you think, what an interesting and cool person you are and how terrible are you at doing textbook work? It's like, you know, a real (laughs) shame where you're like, man, in any other setting, what a blast. You're such a charmer. You're fun. You're interesting. You say insightful things and you just can't write a damn sentence to save your life, man. I'm very sorry. You know, it's like, I don't know how to, you know, I'm trying to help you as much as I can. Um, So that part kind of tugged at me too a little bit. There were a lot of moments though in that narrative. Yeah. And, and in that same narrative, just a couple of pages prior to that, that quote, um, I thought it was interesting that one of his friends that his close friend, said that his parents um, raised him well, raised Bryant well, because Bryant was so innocent and so completely unaware of of some of the dangers in his own neighborhood, even on his own street. So I thought that that was an interesting, that she doesn't like dive into that a whole lot, but that, yeah. that phrase, raised him well, m- meant that he was completely unaware of of some of the realities of his own neighborhood which i thought was really telling and also like what does that mean when 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 his best friend at this point is is like kind of making that kind of judgment call and, and saying that that it that it's a good thing to not be aware but that's also what got him in trouble yeah yeah, potentially. Too, 
Yeah, you know? so I thought that was that just that that sentence there just made me stop, and I was like, "Well, this is a headbender here." Okay, <laughs> it does wrap back around too to the conversation we opened earlier. That I don't think her narrative closes in any way, but it's the idea of where should you live if you are a public servant of in any really any way, but you know, especially in this place, police detectives. Where should you live? Who should you interact with when you're not at work? You know, what community should you? thrust yourself into so to speak and it's odd because he's wally obviously makes this moral decision to do it which is admirable but then of course reading the paragraphs like that you realize but has he done it i mean if you literally live somewhere but never partake in i guess in the broadest sense we just say partake in the culture of the place you live in i don't right it's a strange dichotomy. Also, I'm drawing that comparison. The Leovi never mentions that conundrum or that kind of contradiction or something. She right. just does bring it up to show that, yeah, that Bryant, when he met people from his neighborhood, finally started to make friends, that it, yeah, it clearly changed him. You know, he gets a tattoo without permission, though he's 18, but, you know, he, he starts to behave and get into certain behaviors that he hadn't before. Yeah. So. But, but that, like... And he, like, by going to private school and stuff, too, he's also, like, removed from that neighborhood, too, and, and removed from the people in that neighborhood, in a way. So it's, yeah. It's an interesting it's an interesting portrayal of, of Bryant um, Tonelli there. Yeah, certainly, certainly. One final point for me in this section, I think. I, I'm, I'm skipping a ton of it here, mostly because the police quibbling over who gets the case, the early details about the, um, you know, trying to track things down. There's a long anecdote about bullet casing and <laughs> who's ballistics scientist versus who's impact or I, for, I already forgot the differences. So, OK, that's all. You know, I'm <laughs> skipping a lot because it didn't intrigue me too terribly much. The ending, though, when she clearly is going to hand the narrative off to Skaggs and the case is literally handed off to Skaggs. Did you feel like they she was trying to be almost too respectful to the other detective Bernal? It, it was she's great with characterization, too. That's one of her you know kind of she does something we've bemoaned other non uh, nonfiction authors for not doing which is she really does dig into the kind of get to know these people some psychology here's how they tick here's you know digs into their personality types all that but like when she does that at the end to Bernal it almost feels like she's trying to apologize on behalf of the <laughs> the case or something she's like no he really did a great job I swear it's you know we, ooh, he, he, he didn't mess it up or anything it's just that it's stalled and here comes Skaggs I just have to assume that if Skaggs saves it the case or you know solves it that that's going to be almost like a funny moment in retrospect Uh, yeah i from the way that she was like oh without bernal then we wouldn't then skaggs wouldn't have some of the core ideas to help him move along the case i was like okay so obviously skaggs is gonna solve the case i'm pretty sure um and so now she's just pointing out that hey, it's okay that the paperwork really did help. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It felt very, like, head nod or, you know, like, bow of respect. But then, of yeah. course, the rest of this book is going to be Skaggs relentlessly chasing it down and fighting for it on the ground and yeah. doing all the kind of immeasurable things that he does, apparently banging on windows relentlessly. Great window banger, that Skaggs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Every yeah. single window. <laughs> That's right. No window unbanged. <laughs> um yeah so 
Um, one of the things that I noticed is actually on page 99, which is, so this is part two, right? This is the beginning of part two of her book. But the very first sentence um, of part two is, it was a truth that all parents seem to acknowledge kids just come out different no matter how much you try to treat them the same. Mm -hmm. That sentence immediately made me think of the first sentence of Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. I don't know if you got that reference at all. I did. Quite a famous line. One of the yeah. all-time famous lines, yeah. Right, and and it just it just highlighted to me. I thought that was a really ingenious, a, a really nice touch there because it highlights the difference between like an Austenite world and the world of like white privilege and aristocracy almost, and you know um, that where the 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 focus of parents is on marriage in Jane Austen's world there yeah. for for women anyway, um, versus the reality that she's pointing out here, which is that, uh, you know, kids are, no matter what, kids are going to, they're going to do their own thing. You can't really do a whole lot with them and they're not going to be, they're not all going to be the same exact kid. Um, so it's, it's like, uh, focusing on the reality of, of parenting versus the, uh, I suppose the the main worry of real of uh, parenting in in a classic like that. Yeah. But I, I I got a little chuckle out of that. I was like, oh, that's nice. That was a yeah, nice little touch. It, she finds ways <laughs> to infuse a little bit of I wouldn't say levity, but she's got a style for sure. It's pretty light. It's like a lot of narrative nonfiction in the same vein feels kind of frictionless in a sense. It's meant mm-hmm. to you know it's it's giving you not overloading you with information, but it's certainly trying to teach you a lot while also being accessible. And so yeah, she she has moments like that that I think are stylistically kind of fun yeah yep i enjoyed it yeah there was one moment i picked up on i just want to mention it because again it struck me as another moment where she picks up something that maybe could be criticized or investigated and then she drops it i'm not going to read the quote but it's just a moment when they talk about how the police tactics often in such neighborhoods include essentially provocation or like purposefully trying to antagonize or they it's like how they'll try and get a they know they, they're pretty sure a guy murdered a guy but they can't prove it so they just get him on another charge it's kind of like they i think at some point the quote is short it's like these things may seem unnecessarily antagonistic or aggressive and it's like you're doing a lot of hand waving with half a sentence you know it's just kind of like yeah. okay i guess I, I think again i don't think she is fully sympathetic to police officers per se but it is i think her perspective is in that i don't know how i'm visualizing this it's kind of like where's her lens pointing like it's more pointing toward that than not though she does seem to not give them the benefit of the doubt but she is very willing to i I don't know like compliment and sort of explain police tactics and whether they're good or bad um Mm -hmm. yeah i just thought that deserved mention because it was such an obvious point to be like well that awfully that sounds awfully like they're kind of a gang mob of their own just trying to like mess with people and she does say you know like that might sound like they're just trying to stir up trouble but i swear there's a purpose so yeah anyway any final thoughts yeah on this section um no, no. Um, this section is also when when um, I pointed out earlier that she makes the point that um, the system looks busy but is ineffective, which is what drives Skaggs up the wall about being a detective. And, and right, right, yeah. Especially since his his rate of like solving cases is like r- ridiculously high, right? <laughs> 
so yeah compared no, it's, to some of the other statistics at some point 80 percent across a year maybe and she yeah she does again go out of her way to show his his excellence and if that's the defining metric for detectives then you know he's he's elite basically right yeah right. excellent okay let's end with one final segment today amanda we'll do one here at the end after our you know, an analytical look at the first half of this book, just to kind of wrap things up and have a final discussion point. This is an old segment we used to do. Let's revive it here. We'll resuscitate it for this ending of part <laughs> one. It's please continue, make it stop. It's a pretty simple one. We're each going to pick out one overall thing from the book that we like and one that we wish would stop <laughs> for the back half. And so, yeah, why don't you start? Do you want to do please continue, make it stop first? What are you thinking? Sure. Um, for my please continue, I said that. I really enjoyed the the narrative style, the the imagery, the the emotional aspect yeah. of her writing. I, I'm really enjoying her her more literary style, and I, but I also appreciate some of the historical context and and a lot of the um, the research that has gone into it. I think that she's definitely done her research, um, and the the joy of reading com- for me comes from the the narrative aspects of of her writing. Definitely. My Please Continue is similar, but not in the not in the literary sense. I just think she does well with interpersonal connection, and she's not afraid to... I'm sure within these moments that she's having to assume some things... I, I'm, I know she did a lot of interviews, but of course there's moments when you just have to make some conclusions and or phrase things in a certain way to make a decision about how to define two people's connection anyway. I just think it's... I know it's not the most definitive fact-based statistical work in a book like this but it feels more essential for that reason to me actually because it's like if i wanted to read many statistics and history things about russian mob medieval mob justice or something or i don't know that's a (laughs) weird example to pull but you get the point i would just do so then but this so i i need that stuff to propel the story and i think she does well with skag she's done well with his relationships with other cops it's the family chapter we picked some quotes from that i think was pretty brutal and fittingly enough pretty brutal so yeah i hope that stuff continues it's i'm glad she's not veering away from it and is really trying to psychologically emotionally interpret these people that their happenings their thinkings all that stuff yeah what's yeah. your make it stop um i make it stop is just I, I feel like the transition some of the interweaving of the the narrative aspects with some of the historical context and some of the the statistics uh, it's for me a bit I, I mentioned drawing I said drawing earlier it's just I feel like maybe some of the transitions could could maybe use some work where I am almost like pulled out of and this is a non-fiction work anyway so it's you know yeah you know, I know yeah. but like it you get so immersed I get so immersed in the narrative aspects of that and I'm I'm like you know feeling all these feelings and then there's like whiplash as she kind of just goes into a a statistical analysis or a philosophical discussion Mm -hmm. which the philosophical discussions don't i mean i you can do that with um, a narrative style anyway and that it often works but it's the the historical evidence specifically for me that she puts in there i think that in the context it fits but moving from one to the other needs some work for me because i'm just like whoa okay yeah <laughs> i need to switch my brain here a little bit 
um, on the fly while I'm reading. Definitely. So. There, there's just no winning with that, right? Because it's yeah. either you do it as she's doing, trying to naturally interweave things, maybe take a chapter break in the middle or whatever, or you just segment it off to a chapter and say, here's some history, philosophy, a little bit of social theory, a little bit of anthropology maybe, and then it's like, oh, and the next chapter, let's apply what we learned, you know? I guess that is more right. of an academic approach <laughs> that, right. or that would be, you know, where it's just kind of like, here's the theory, apply it now. Two distinct, different, I don't know, moments or learning points or something. Yeah. Right. I, mine is, my make it stop is similar. I just think... I think starting with the case, it's pretty grisly, the imagery up front. It's obviously meant to, you know, obviously meant to, but I think it's invoke, evoking things about true crime that people find engaging. It's really intense. It's, you know, these moment to moment, moment, it almost feels like not cops, that shows kind of scandalous and stupid or like salacious, but like, the, you know, just like investigative shows, police procedurals on TV, all that kind of stuff. It's evoking a lot of that. I just thought that leaving the case for so long, it really just feels like the book starts in chapter 10 is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I, like, yeah. And the rest of it was necessary in, in a sense because it's you got to know who Skaggs is. You got to know the Tonellis. You got to know like Wally obviously is, is going to be a massive figure in this book and is already an interesting person to kind of see his reactions and everything. I just when chapter 10 started and it's like, oh, by the way, you get to meet Bryant now, that person who was killed. Right. I just thought like, OK, it's. I don't know what this book structure is doing. That's just too long for me. Obviously, I'm back in. The narrative is going to be very propulsive at this point. I'm certain of it. <laughs> I haven't read ahead, but it's pretty clear, right, what, what's about to happen. And right. so, you know, I'm on board for sure. But I, chapter 10 definitely stunned me a little bit by like, oh, we're, so you're going to give a whole little chapter to him? Like, I thought he was just going to be a mention, you know, or just like mention that that's his son. And anyway, I yeah, something about the narrative imbalance of it. It felt like it took too long, I guess, mm -hmm. if, if I could phrase it that way. Yeah. That yeah. But I, yeah, if, that's a more, more of a criticism that it's not like you can stop it because I think it's going to be pretty, you know, it's going to be pretty quick moving now. But that's, yeah. What are your thoughts? It makes me think of, um, uh, like a, a fantasy or a sci-fi novel where you you mm -hmm. get all this background information you get the the world building at first a lot oh, of the yeah. time and then yeah. like halfway through the book you're like okay so this is where the the story itself really begins all that totally. other stuff was just like the background information so it's the structure i suppose is a lot like that for in my mind <laughs> definitely <laughs> yeah and i think it's been worth it because it, we had to know skaggs had to know the tonellis yeah. i yeah maybe some of that other more aggressive kind of nonfiction, broadly speaking nonfiction, could have been smoother or less of it or uh, who knows right no simple editing answers here but it, right. it when chapter 10 started i almost just kind of chuckled being like oh okay so you are going to commit to this like we are you are getting back to the thing <laughs> that the book promised like i guess <laughs> this is on page 95 or, or 100 or wherever it was it was like okay we are going to do this then i'm gonna yeah. you know we're really going to get to meet this this young man and dig into the tragedy of it all so i yeah anyway yeah i just thought that was such an odd segue and you know the books are labeled so i i should probably just adhere to the my mental state and go by the books because <laughs> it's <laughs> didn't that basically start like or part two not book two what did she call right, part it? two okay yeah, i called the book two. but yeah i meant part it's like they are labeled in parts so part one was the setup part two is the you know the case basically so okay any final thoughts on the first half so far of ghetto side uh, I, don't, I don't think so. I think I'm good. 
Excellent. All right. Let's close it out. I mean, geez, the new format here, we went a little long, but that's by design. Let's talk <laughs> about dates for upcoming stuff. We are, as I mentioned, the Lightly Literary Podcast. Find us on Facebook and Instagram on that name, all one word. And, you know, rate and review on Spotify or iTunes or wherever the heck you are. We'd appreciate it things coming up well we'll be doing part two of this book next friday if you've found us on a friday then we always post our book clubs on friday so check us out there it'll also live in the feed forever so you know can always go dig it up there if you didn't like this discussion or if you just want to know what other books we're going to do coming up amanda will tell you about those shortly take it away amanda uh, next up, we have We Are Okay by Nina LaCour, which is a young adult novel. Then we have The Inkle or Inkal by Hodorowski yeah. and Mobius, which is a graphic novel. And then we have Uncommon Type, Some Stories by Tom Hanks. Yes, the Tom Hanks. Um, Wild. He wrote um, some short stories and threw them in a book. So that's what we're going to read. Yeah, Tom Hanks is coming up. Wild. Well, I mean, you know. That's many weeks away, I guess we did. <laughs> two bo- two yeah. weeks per book. It's not exactly soon, but it is kind of funny to see it on the schedule. So Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a bunch of fiction coming up. We'd like to balance. We're a fiction-heavy pod, but, you know, get in some nonfiction, too. Okay. Yeah. Well, we thank you, as always, for listening. We'll be back with part two of this book next week. And until that time, we'll see you between the pages. <laughs> <laughs>